Well, so far, we have looked at the Beatitudes as the essential teachings of Jesus. We've taken all summer to look at these. We still have one more Sunday, though. I'm going to take Labor Day weekend to kind of wrap things up and uh, be able to do that. I know Stephanie put in in there this was the last one. It is the last Beatitude, but we will wrap things up next Sunday with this series But these attributes sum up how how God wants us to live. And so these these words are both our calling and our greatest goals. So far, we've learned that we need to walk away from pride and confess our need for Christ. We've learned that we need to face sorrow with, with Christ at our side. And we've learned to serve others as Christ serves us. We've also learned to crave righteousness more than our desire for food and water. And we've hopefully learned that we need to lend a hand when others are in need. We've learned to remain focused on the true Savior in a world of counterfeit messiahs. And we also, too, have learned to bring harmony to broken relationships, all in these Beatitudes that we've been learning throughout this summer. Now, you may have noticed that the first seven are things we do. We, we look for ways of being merciful to others. We act, actively seek to know God through prayer and reading His Word. And, of course, we seek to bring peace to our relationships. But this last beatitude is different. It isn't something we do, but rather something that can happen to us when we take the first seven beatitudes seriously. And talking about things happening to us reminds me of a story about a Texan billionaire with a beautiful 22-year-old daughter. He was fond of holding parties around his deep, opulent swimming pool. And in the pool, he kept a vicious 20-foot-long great white shark. And every party night, he would ha- issue this challenge to all the young men that were present. Half my fortune or my daughter's hand in marriage to the man who swims across this pool. And of course, he could never get a challenger. Then one night, immediately the challenge was issued. A tall, muscular hunk hit the water. With arms churning, he charged across the pool like a speedboat. In a wink, the shark sped after him, closing in fast. And the hunk reached the other side, whipping out of the water, just as the shark smashed into the concrete. The pool guests screamed and applauded the the incredible hero. Bravo! Fantastic! cried the the Texan. And that's the greatest act of courage I've ever seen. Half my fortune is yours. I don't want your fortune, replied the hunk quietly. Well, with, with tears of pride in his eyes, the Texan, looking at his daughter, who nodded excitedly, said, I'd I'd be so proud to call you son. You can have my daughter's hand in marriage. I don't want your daughter either, he replied. (laughs) Well, well, quizzed the Texan, you don't want my money or my daughter. What do you want? The hunk hissed through clenched teeth. Just give me that name of the guy who pushed me into the pool. (laughs) Sometimes not so good things can happen to us while we're just standing there. But most often it's because of where we stand on the issues of life. When we begin to live the way God wants us to live, when we're broken, when we're mournful, when we're gentle, when we're hungering and thirsting, when we're merciful, when we have pure hearts, when we're peacemakers, 
we're going to be troublemakers in the eyes of the world. <laughs> because the way of this world is to praise dead saints and persecute living ones. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Let me read that to you as our beginning here. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this last beatitude is both a warning and a promise. It's a warning that the world will not stand up and applaud as we serve Christ. And it's a promise that Christ will reward our efforts when we serve Him. Let's take a closer look at both of these uh, uh, things, a warning and the promise during our time here together. The first thing we want to look at is the warning. The warning is persecution. Persecution. The actions that people may take against us for simply living as Christians. That's persecution. Christ knew how revolutionary His teaching was and that those who tried to honor Him and His teaching would not be well received by the world He came to save. Those who teach that Christ will take away our troubles and fill our lives with health and wealth and, and easy living uh, if we simply have enough faith are wrong. <laughs> Christ warns us that honoring Him will most likely mean more hardship on earth, not less. So, good news of the gospel? <laughs> it is. Just look at those who followed him the closest, though. Other than Judas and John, these accounts are not scriptural. Some are historical, some are, are passed down by Christian traditions, and are consistent with how they would have been treated in their time. So, you take Andrew, brother of Peter. He is martyred by crucifixion. He was bound, not nailed, to an X-shaped cross in a place uh, in where, is, uh, where southern Greece is right now. It is believed that he hung alive for two days, exhorting ex uh, spectators all the while. Kind of fascinating. Bartholomew, also named Nathaniel, he was the most traveled of the disciples. And he is probably the most uh, uh, horrific uh, uh, death. He preached the gospel, though, in Mesopotamia, which is Iraq. He also went to Persia, which is Iran. He went to Ethiopia, Arabia, and India. Now, you can think now, these days, those places are really hostile to Christians. But he was martyred by, by being skinned alive and then crucified. <laughs> and his, he was crucified head downward by the idolaters, as it says in Fox's Book of Martyrs, by the idolaters of Armenia, which is Western Asia near Turkey. James the Greater, which is also son of Zebedee, he was the brother of John, is beheaded or stabbed, I'm not sure exactly, but beheaded or stabbed with a sword by Herod Agrippa around 44 AD near Palestine and not far from where he was a, a local missionary to the Jews in Judea. His accuser was converted by James's courage, and the both of them were beheaded together, if, they, if that was the case as far as beheading. James the Lesser, son of Alphaeus, was first bishop of Jerusalem, 
He was martyred in his early 90s, and get this, by being thrown from a pinnacle of the Jerusalem temple. But then he was stoned and his head was bashed in with a club. If that wasn't enough. John, the beloved son of Zebedee, brother of James, he was the one who died a natural death. The only apostle who did not meet a martyr's death. He was banished by the Roman emperor to the Isle of Patmos, where John wrote Revelation. And it is believed he was later freed and went to preach in Turkey and died at 100 years of age. Kind of interesting because I recall that Jesus said, was it to you if I allow this person to live on or to live longer or, or yeah, or not to face these things? Jude, also known as Thaddeus, he wrote the book of Jude, of course. He was martyred by being beaten with a club, then crucified in 72 AD at the city of Edessa, which is in Turkey, while on a missionary trip that went to Persia, which, of course, is Iran. Judas Iscariot, of course, we all know that he, uh, he uh, hanged himself, suicide after betraying Jesus. Matthew, also known as Levi, he preached the gospel in Ethiopia and was killed for questioning the morals of the king. He was martyred by uh, about 60 AD by being staked and speared to the ground. Simon Peter, martyred by crucifixion at Rome by Nero around 68 AD, of course, upside down at his request because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified like Jesus. Philip, Philip preached uh, in uh, Phrygia, which was in the Roman province of Asia near Ephesus, which we know as Turkey. He continued preaching until his death in 54 AD in Egypt, and is believed that Philip was tortured, impaled by iron hooks in his ankles, and hung upside down to die. Simon, the Canaanite, called the zealot because, of course, he was associated with that sect. He thought to have ministered mostly to, to Jordan, in the Jordan area. He was martyred by crucifixion in Britain in 74 AD, and then sawed in half. Not only just crucified, but sawed in half. Thomas, also known as Didymus, preached the gospel in Parthia, which is Iran, and in Kerala, which is southern India, where yet today the Martoma church exists. Martyred, he was martyred by uh, being thrust through by, by a spear in India. Mark, also known as John Mark, he's the author of the gospel of Mark, he was martyred by being dragged to death. Luke, the physician, author of the gospel of, of Luke, of course, and Acts, he was hanged on an olive tree. Matthias, uh, of course, he was the disciple who filled the place of Judas, <laughs> if he knew what he was getting into. <laughs> um, but he was stoned and beheaded at Jerusalem. The apostle Paul wrote half of the New Testament, was beheaded by Emperor Nero at Rome. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown some 100 feet off a wall, done to him after he repeatedly refused to deny his faith in Jesus. And he survived the fall and then was beat to death with clubs. <laughs> it's interesting. They really wanted them to die. They probably remembered Jesus came back to life, and they thought, no, these guys are not. And they took care of him. Not only crucified, saw him in half, or did all these other things too to make sure they weren't coming back. They all, though, all these, all these people knew that their devotion to Christ would cost them dearly. 
Now, we don't face a lot of blatant persecution here in the United States. <laughs> we still enjoy the freedom of practicing our faith as long as we don't break the law. During the pandemic, though, during that shutdown, some churches came under pressure from the government when they chose to continue meeting in person. You probably read headlines about that. Sporadically, our freedoms are coming under some fire, but we really don't know persecution the way many of our brothers and sisters in Christ do around the world. Let me share with you what real persecution is like. It's probably no surprise to you that all Christians don't enjoy the same freedom we do. It might surprise you to hear how much believers in other parts of the world pay to be followers of Christ. I did some investigating this week, looked up some websites. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs, a great website if you want to figure out some of these things and how to pray for the persecuted church. Another website is uh, Open Doors, another website that also deals with the persecuted church as well and gives great information. But here are just a few of the news articles from the many I found. And these are recent events. In the Kaduna State, Nigeria, on Sunday, June 19th, gunmen attacked Maranatha Baptist and St. Moses Catholic Churches in northern Nigeria, killing at least three worshipers and abducting more than 30 worshipers. The attack comes on the heels of the widely reported June 5th attack on the Awa, Awa Church massacre in South Nigeria, where 50 worshipers were killed. Gunmen attacked the church and burned down another one. In Nigeria, a Christian is killed for their faith every two hours. That's nearly 13 Christians a day and 372 Christians a month. Each number represents a man, a woman, a father, a mother, a son, or daughter who die violently just because they follow Jesus. Research for the 20, uh, 2022 World Watch List, published by Open Door Ministry, they re reveals that in 2021, more Christians were murdered for their faith in Nigeria than any, in, than any other country. And last year, Nigeria accounted for nearly 80% of Christian deaths worldwide, with more than 4,650 believers killed, making Nigeria the world's most violent place for Christians. West Bengal, uh, India. Christian Solidarity Worldwide reported on August 23rd, not too long ago, that the wife and son of an evangelist, Madhavan, the sole Christian convert in his extended family in majority Hindu India, helped neighbors burn him to death because of his faith. Madhavan's wife and son severely beat him while he was attending worship service August 14th at a church in Bankura. It took him home and helped the community drag him into a nearby forest, poured gasoline on him, and burned him alive. These stories are not from ancient history. These aren't the stories from Fox's Book of Martyrs. These stories are happening in the last three months. And this last story isn't unique to India, which happens to be on the top ten list of places where it is difficult to live as a Christian. Another group uh, uh, that I've mentioned that follows stories like this, the Voice of the Martyrs, lists 48 nations that they are active in. These nations, as large as China and India, as small as Sri Lanka and uh, Comoros Islands, c contain well over half of the world's population. And this is what the Voice of the Martyrs says about persecution today. They say, around the world today, Christians are being persecuted for their faith. More than 70 million Christians have been martyred for their faith since 33 A.D. 
This year, an estimated 160,000 believers will die at the hands of their oppressors, and over 200 million will be persecuted, arrested, tortured, beaten, or jailed. In many nations, it is illegal to own a Bible, share your faith, change your faith, or allow children under 18 to attend a religious service. Those are incredible numbers. We need to remember what Jesus told His disciples because it reminds us of where we stand as Christians in case we are confused with the world's intentions. John 15, verse, starting with verse 18, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus is the reason for the persecution. When you follow him, you're, you're signing up for it. And they, the world, will not like you. Warning, warning, the world doesn't like you because they didn't like Jesus. And they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute you too. Then there's the promise. The promise in all of it is that Jesus will help us. Jesus will help us. These brothers and sisters in Christ press on. They keep the faith. They stay loyal despite the, uh, uh, all this opposition around them. The church actually thrives on opposition. The church's most explosive growth happens where it faces its hardest opponents. Just remember in Scripture in Acts when there was persecution and Stephen was martyred and the churches did what? They, they, they scattered. All the believers, they scattered. But you know what happened when that occurred? The gospel went out. And it also advanced the kingdom of heaven under persecution. Church's most explosive growth happens where it faces its hardest opponents. There are three and a half times more Christians in China than people in Canada. <laughs> you guys were there. There are literally thousands of people in India coming to Christ every day. And why? Because Christ blesses those who face hardship for Him. He honors the men and the women and children who won't let go of their faith in the face of disrespect, distrust, and even disabling pressure. We don't have to be punished for our faith in order to see it grow, though. <laughs> Most of us will likely never face persecution, as has been described right now. Yet we can still thrive and grow in our faith. And that said, those who have to, to pay a price for being a Christian tend to take their faith that much more seriously. They rely on their faith to see them through hard times, even when, when their faith is the cause of those hardships. As with, with many things in life, when there's a high cost uh, to something, we tend to value it more. I can remember my roommate from University of Portland when I was there my freshman year. I got there, lived in the dorm the second semester, second part, second part of, my, of, of that year, and my roommate, his father was a professor at University of Portland. But his father passed away a, a couple of years before that. And he then, uh, his, his, his family and of course his son, 
who was my roommate, was given a free ride at University of Portland. Didn't have to pay for anything at all. And he really didn't value it. He did a lot of other stuff other than learn <laughs> at that university. And I, 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 it was amazing, all the different things that he was doing. I was, I was thinking, why are you here? <laughs> of course, not to learn, but to, just to have a good time. I, of course, had to go to pay, uh, and, and it was a lot of money. And I valued where I was at, what I was doing, the courses I was paying for. I was going to attend those courses because it was money out the, out the window if I didn't. When there's a high cost of something, we tend to value it more. And it's pretty easy in our society to say, I have faith, but we're not usually called to defend it. And we don't always live like we need it. Many of our Christian brothers and sisters in other places take their faith more seriously because it's all they have. They also know that the hardship is a sign that their faith is meaningful and real. The world doesn't really care if we keep our faith to ourselves. You know, we can, we can meet in buildings and sing and preach our hearts out if we stay within these buildings and do nothing else. But when we take our faith into the world we live in and we work in, we're bringing Christ's message to a world that doesn't always like to hear it. We need to know that Christ will help us when the pressure's on, and that's the promise He makes here, and that's the promise He gives us. Matthew 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But what if it were us? If the church in our country faced the kind of oppression they faced, what do you think would happen? If we faced what they faced, what would we do? The promise is the same. God will bless those who are punished by society for honoring Him. But are we ready to face this kind of heat? Are we prepared? And let's not start with the thought of soldiers bursting into our services. You know, that does happen in many parts of the world, but I don't think that's, that, would, that would happen here, at least not yet. <laughs> Probably the first thing we might face sooner than later is the loss of our, maybe, government support. It wouldn't be the army who would start persecution. It would most likely start with targeting our church finances. You get to the books, be able to cut them down that way. They can't exist anymore because they need money to exist. Let me place before you the following scenario. In our church, and in most every church in this country, we see the following support from at least two layers of government. Uh, the ability to issue charitable receipts allows you guys to give money to churches and receive a benefit on your income tax. Tax write-off. Now, for some people, that's motivation to give to the church. You've got other motivations I, I trust and I hope is <laughs> not just tax-related. The pastor's housing allowance permits me to not pay taxes on that portion of the salary package, which allows me to be able to live on a lower kind of salary income. And also churches are exempt from property taxes. Could you imagine paying property tax in this area? 
So what would happen? What would happen if just one of, those, one of these benefits was taken away because of something or another? And there's a lot of things you probably could put in there for an example. Whatever it would be that would take these things away, what would happen? Look at charitable receding. There's a potential for a drastic change in our church income because people would probably be less likely to give if they don't get the benefit in the taxes. Clergy housing. I'd be facing significant loss of income. It'd be a little tougher to live where we're at. Property tax. <laughs> increase for expenditure based on value of property. There would be a big increase here. It wouldn't take much to seriously destabilize many, many churches that function on the edge of financial sustainability, especially after going through uh, the COVID pandemic. Some churches didn't survive financially in that. And, and please hear me correctly, and those who are online too, <laughs> I'm not rallying against the government here, okay? <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm just laying before you one scenario that could happen if our nation began to turn against the church. It's possible. And you, as you read the headlines and notice the news reports, it's possible. Would we be able to survive this level of persecution? What if it got worse? And there are many types of persecution that we could face. The big question we need to ask ourselves is what will happen when we do? I think we'd be surprised, but I hope we would be ready. So what do we do for now? We, we hear the warning, persecution is going to be there. We've got the promise, Jesus will be with us, help us through those things. What do we do now? Well, I think for one, we can learn. We can be educated. You get on, on those web, websites, Voice of the Martyrs. Persecution.org is the, is the website. Open Doors Ministry is opendoorsusa.org. Get on those websites. Be informed. What is going on out there? What is happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ so that you might be able to pray for them and be aware of what's going on outside our confines of the United States? And I also, too, always be informed by trusted news sources of what, what is going on in our government as well. What is our government doing in creating laws at the national level, state level, county level, and city level? Now, I will never tell you how to vote on issues or, or, or political positions of leadership from this pulpit. I will never do that. But I will encourage you to be an informed voter informed on the issues, and informed by biblical principles. What does God's Word say in this? Be directed by His Word. So learn. Be educated. What else can you do? Pray. You can pray. There is nothing more powerful than the power of prayer. And we have a God who is in control and desires to see people be reconciled to Himself. And we can be guided by the voice of, of the martyrs website and, and, and Open Doors website and praying for the persecuted church. We can pray about the issues at hand in our country. But I think we need to be praying for the salvation of our government leaders who don't know Christ. Not because we can then become a Christian nation. Not, not going that route. But because those souls matter to Christ. Those souls will face an eternity. And we need to have 
We need to be able to see this through the lens of, of God. These people matter, no matter who they are. Governor Brown, President Biden, if you agree with what they're doing or not, they are a person created by God, and they matter to God. They are facing eternity just like anyone else. Have you prayed for our government leaders for their salvation? A third thing we can do is to prepare. We can prepare as well. Now, I'm not saying like in, in uh, 1999, in December, at the end of December, everyone gathered up all these canisters of food and everything else and five-gallon buckets that you might still have, maybe. I don't know. Stocked away somewhere because we were turning over to 2000. Didn't know what was going to happen. But I mean prepare ourselves by learning from the persecuted church. There's an article I came across uh, by Tim Dustin, uh, part of the Open Door uh, website. It's titled, Living in a Violent World, Seven Lessons from Persecuted Christians. I'd like to share with you because I believe we can glean some things out of this and be prepared as well too. Because our Christian brothers and sisters in, in, in the persecuted church live in, in the threat of violence each and every day. And they've, they've navigated this. And some have the scars and wounds to prove it. It's by their actions and discipline we're able to learn how to live in a violent world. This is a violent world. If you haven't noticed, just watch the news for 30 minutes and you'll see it. And it's through them that we're able to study and adapt and grow closer to Christ. So here are seven things we can learn from the persecuted church about living in a violent world. One, always give thanks. That's tough. But always give thanks. When violence seems to walk up to our front door, where is our focus? Are we dwelling on the attackers and our own fears? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul writes, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks. It doesn't say be happy about it. It doesn't say rejoice in it. Give thanks. It can be easy to get caught up in a narrative and be on the hunt for answers to such horrific acts. But the Bible instructs us to give thanks. Because our, our initial question would be, why? Why would this happen? Why would 50 worshipers be massacred in a church across the, uh, around the world? Why would people want to kill Christians like that? Why would any country want to persecute our brothers and, Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ? That's the first question that pops in our mind. Why? But the Bible, of course, instructs us to give thanks. So when we least feel like it, our praise matters the most. A second thing we do is refuse to let fear win. Refuse to let fear win. Remember, these are lessons learned from the persecuted church. When violent acts fill our social media and TV screens, fear can take hold of us. We might think, will my, will my kids be safe at school? Will my grandkids be safe at school? Is this a safe neighborhood to live in anymore? If that armed robbery happened a couple doors down, will it happen to me next? Because if you get on neighborhood, there's a neighborhood app you can get on, and you can find out what's going on. People are claiming that their car was stolen or their house was broken into or someone's creeping around in their backyard. You wonder, is it am I next? Because I'm nearby. Violence is a challenge that can seem completely overwhelming, but it's also a challenge we can face with Christ. 
God's hopeful words are found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We constantly battle fear, and sometimes fear gets an edge on us. But that's where we can turn to God and surrender it all to Him. We can give Him our fears and place our wills and, and, and our lives in His care. When we let Him take control, we can know we're in the best of hands. Fear, panic, and anxiety can feel overwhelming. But when we surrender to God, we can find a peace not of this world. A third thing we can look at and learn from, from the persecuted church is to rely on God. Rely on God. So who or what are we relying on to save us? Do we think politics is going to take care of us? Do we think policies that are handed down by our government is going to take care of us? Our own strength, will that help us through? Whatever is of this world will ultimately fail. And when we rely on God first and put our faith in Him, that's when we have a firm foundation. The what-ifs can be relentless, though. They come at us, don't they? What if this happens? What if that happens? But in John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus tells us, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. What a perfect peace to have with us daily. A peace that can calm our minds and spirit. When we rely on ourselves, we're setting ourselves up for nights filled with anxiety. But when we, we put our full trust in God, we have His permission to let that go. We won't know what's coming next, but we can trust in the one who does. And then a, a fourth thing we can learn is to take a courageous next step. Take a courageous next step. So much violence is mindless and heartbreaking. And when we start to fear what could happen, or, uh, start to fear about what could happen, our, our, our faith begins to shrink. We shy away from challenges and next steps. Instead, hold on to what we have with white knuckles. All this other stuff has been taken away. I'm holding on tight to this now. But we were made to thrive. We were made to thrive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Paul writes to the church in Corinth living in a hedonistic culture. He says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Is that how we're living today? Are we living faith-filled lives courageously and with strength? It's too easy to fear violence to a point where we hesitate even leaving our homes. But God commands us to be strong and courageous. A fifth thing we can learn from the persecuted church, grieve what you've lost. Grieve what you've lost. God sees your grief, and He's right alongside you. We're not a culture that excels at grieving. <laughs> we try to push through our emotions as fast as possible so we can right the ship and get back to our routines. But when violence impacts our lives, and some of us horrifically so, God tells us to grieve. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus didn't say, come to me so I can fix you as fast as possible. He said, in me, you'll find rest. Grieving is part of the healing process. 
And God sees us. He knows what you're carrying. He knows we can, we can get weary and we can get burdened. We're living in a violent world with violent people. And some of us must grieve some of the hardest pains, but we can find rest in Him. Grieve what you've lost. A, a, a sixth thing we can do is uh, learn is forgive your enemies. Whoa. <laughs> forgive your enemies. How many people over Nigeria are able to do that? Just as God, though, has forgiven us, we're called to forgive others. It can be so hard <laughs> to do that. When we're wronged, it can be difficult to forgive. And sometimes we may not even want to. There's a sense of power that comes with holding a hurt over someone else's head. They'd done this to me, and I'm not going to forget it. But in those moments, we remember that Jesus doesn't hold our sins over our heads. He forgives, and He calls on us to forgive others. It's a command. Do you do it perfectly and right away the first time? Probably not. But are you moving towards that direction? Then good. Keep moving. See, hatred brews quickly when we allow it. When someone has acted against us or purposely hurt us or someone we love, we can wish nothing but harm on them. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We looked at that a little bit just recently. Forgive your enemies. And finally, what we can learn from the persecuted church in preparing, keep persevering. Keep persevering. Hate, persecution, and violence can stop us in our tracks. It, it, it can leave us wondering, how could somebody do that to someone else? And our hearts break, and we're left confused and, and hurt. Violence and the threat of it can be paralyzing. Each of us has, had our, our, own, has our own race to run. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We don't know what's coming next, but we do know with God there's nothing we can't handle. If we remain grounded in our faith, on Him as our firm foundation, we can walk confidently wherever He may lead us. Now, he, want, he wants us to live life abundantly, not in our houses behind locked doors, but on the mission fields. He's prepared for each of us. So always give thanks, refuse to, to let fear win, rely on God, take a courageous next step, grieve what you've lost, forgive your enemies, and keep persevering. No matter the violence, God is with us. After Moses' death, God gives Joshua this promise. He says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. There will be violence in this world until Christ returns for His people. Prayer and our relationship with God is our number one weapon against that. And from, the, from, the, from the jungles of Nigeria to the cities of China to our, even our own homes, God answers prayer all over the world, and He is with His people. Trust He will be with us wherever He would have us go. 
no matter the persecution, no matter the violence. We are given a warning. There will be persecution. Don't be surprised. But we also, too, are given a promise. Jesus will help us. Be informed. Be in prayer. Be prepared. In all this, we don't forget Jesus' promise. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to have the worship team come on up. They're going to lead us in the last couple songs. And as they do, if, if God has spoken to your heart in some way, I trust that you will act in obedience and what He has for you. And maybe it's something totally different than what you've heard right now. Probably intrigued your thinking on something else. And then you thought, well, maybe I need to work in this area. And the Holy Spirit said, yes, you need to. Whatever the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, however He's prompting you, just be in obedience to that. Saying yes to God. <laughs> Letting Him know, yes, I, it's, this is difficult. Not sure how it's going to work out. Don't know how if I'm going to keep up with this. But initially, yes, this is what I'm going to do. You are right, God. I need help in this area. I need to be prepared. I need to pray more. I need to look around me and see who I need to share your, your love with. Whatever it might be, let's be ready and let's remember we will be persecuted, but we have Jesus alongside us helping us all along the way. One of the songs that we're going to be singing together is uh, called My Tribute. And I trust that that would be yours as well. How can you say thanks? This God who has given us so much and who will help us through whatever difficulties we have, He will provide. Jehovah Jireh, He is a God who provides. And so as we sing these songs, I trust that God will draw you close to Himself. And if anything, just, just remind you that you are loved. And there's God who wants the best for you. So be drawn to God as we sing these songs here.